During this uh, month and section of Advent, we have been looking at the Gospel of John, and we invite you to turn there again this morning and to take your bulletins, turning in pages 8 and 9 for the sermon outline. And this morning, in the interest of time, I'm going to read just verse 14 of chapter 1. And then we'll look at several other passages as we go along. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May we pray. We humbly submit to you this morning our hearts and our minds, O Lord, for you have given them to us and we return them to you in devotion, that you may fill us with your presence and your truth, and that you might invigorate us with the power of the Spirit, for we in ourselves are weak, distracted, confused, and lonely. But you have given us your Son, and may he make all the difference we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Kevin has said last week, and as I say today, John, our gospel writer, concentrates not so much on what happened when Jesus was born, that is, the angels and the magi and the star and King Herod, but what, on what all the events surrounding the Incarnation actually mean for us. And so these next three Sundays, as I As I preach, God willing, we'll look at the meaning of the Incarnation. As we began to explore it last week, we saw that it's really too big for us to completely comprehend. There's too much there, it's too big that God would become man, that his purposes would be that grand, and that what this would all mean philosophically and abstractly is is really quite uh, heavy and and makes our head hurts to think about it. Fortunately, that's not all that it has to do with. It also has a very personal and practical application. He says here in this passage that the Word, which has been mentioned since verse 1 of chapter 1, that the Word was there in the beginning, this Word, this God-man, the one who would come, who was there at creation, who is part of the Trinity, who is the Lord and Savior, he would come. And this now we are told in verse 14 that he became flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to know the Logos, if you want to know the Word, you have to know the Son. If you want to know the Father, he said so often when he was on the earth, he said, you must, if you want to see, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we don't have just the philosophical statements of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and etc. But we have the actual presence of the Lord Jesus, the actual manifestation of the grace of God, in him. And so if we want to know what God the Father is like and what the Holy Trinity is like, we must look at him. And what has he done? He's become flesh. He came to us. He entered into the world. He purposely took on a, an additional form. This has caused a great deal of controversy over the years. We've had heresies and church councils over how God could become man, how this one verse in John chapter 1 could be properly understood. 
and down to today, we only have a partial understanding. We know that there are two natures, God and man, that are brought together in Jesus as in no other. And that as he comes together in in this one person, we have an expression of God that we can begin to grasp, that we can begin to hold on to, that is not just an abstraction. So as I say in the outline, you can't know God except through Jesus Christ, his Son. You can know things about God, but to know him takes Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. We see this in places like uh, Hebrews chapter 1, where we're told that Jesus, as Kevin read last week, is the exact representation of his being. And we know, too, that God has been bringing his firstborn into the world. And, of course, in the most famous verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So there's a multitude of themes here. There's entry into the world. There's God becoming flesh. There's the Father sending the Son. There's the Son willingly going and taking on our flesh. This is a beginning of the meaning of Christmas. And so in application there, I say, God has spoken rationally. He has made sense by sending his son. But it is not a watertight argument that he has sent. In other words, we still don't grasp it completely. Instead, he sent a watertight person. You have to look at him and his life and his teachings and his resurrection and come to a conclusion about him. Have you come to such a conclusion? Have you decided, have you, have you determined that he is the Son of God as he claims to be? That these things about Christmas are true and not just myth and random story? And do you want to know him personally? This can happen through the Word, but primarily and only through the Word. As the writer to the Hebrews says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And what do we hear? We hear that this word became flesh, that the divine became human, vulnerable, soft, an infant, embraceable, safe. He came to us not as a mighty lightning thrower or someone who tore down all the buildings or someone who marched his army across the continents, but as an infant vulnerable, a baby. He has heard our cries and he has come down at the cost of his life. And in so doing, he made himself vulnerable not only to the powers of Herod and the kings of the earth like Pilate, but he made himself vulnerable also to sin, to temptation, He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And he walked the way that we have to walk. So what we have is the beginning of a demonstration of interest. He has come, uninvited, foretold, yes, through the prophets and himself the Messiah, but he has come at his own initiative. And in coming he has humbled himself. He has taken on our flesh. He has experienced for the first time the limitations of of finitude. He is no longer infinite in every way. 
for he has a body. And in that body he is subjected to the trials, the rejections, the pain, and the sorrow that we have been faced with. This is a grand condescension, and we must not miss it. He who was eternally preexistent and powerful and sufficient unto himself, who needed nothing and nobody, has come and become flesh, humbling himself to an amazing extent. This is a wordless act of enormous importance, as we will see. What it means, as I say under the application of the second point, is that now we can go to him with everything. And he will not just listen, he will understand. He even knows what it's like to be and to feel abandoned by God. So as Paul Tripp says, the whole redemptive story marches toward Emmanuel, toward God with us. The Redeemer who would destroy sin's dominion in our hearts by making our hearts the place where he is in his power, wisdom, and glory would dwell. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this is of no importance to the unbeliever. Couldn't care less. I don't need any more intrusions in my life. I don't want any more intrusions in my life, and so I'm not uh, particularly interested. Okay, God came to earth, God took on flesh, God had his time among us, so to speak, and if you believe that kind of thing, and so forth. And it's also of less interest to those who have been deeply hurt, who are experiencing loss and pain and sorrow, difficulty. Because the question comes, well, what good is it? He's come, but I still hurt. He's come and redeemed, redeemed my soul, but my body and my life is still impacted negatively. But we must hear the word of God. And this is what it says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory excuse me, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We were especially glad this Thanksgiving that my son who lives in Connecticut came to see us. It had been three years since we'd had any sort of visit from him and his wife and children. Not because of any rancor or discord in the family, as far as I know, but just because they have little children and it was a lot of trouble. Finally, his mother prevailed on him. Something like this. We're not coming there. You come here. Now, we talk all the time. We have Skype. We, we go up there to see him and his family. But there was something special and enriching about his presence, his coming, his humbling himself, his organizing himself, and bringing his family to us. 
And for the three days or so that he was with us, and the children were with us, there was a special richness to his dwelling among us, his being in our midst. It's something like that, only far more than we are intended to see here. The Word became flesh and dwelt, lived among us. This is what the angels said. This is what God said in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, excuse me, when he said, Emmanuel, you shall give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is an old idea, and he might have said, a num- used a number of words, but the word he used is stra- a little bit of a strange one, the word tabernacle. He, he, he became as the tabernacle among us. He didn't visit us. He didn't stay with us. He didn't live among us. He tabernacled among us. And that brings up all of the Old Testament images for those of us who are not Gentiles. For the people who were reading this, for the most part, they're remembering what? The tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was an expression, a symbolic expression of the presence of God in the midst of his people. And whenever the pillar of fire would move by night or the the pillar of cloud by day would move, the people of Israel would surround the Ark of the Covenant and they would tear down the tabernacle tent that surrounded it and they would move with him in their midst to a new place. The tabernacle represented the invisible God. It was not a magical place. It was not a place that was given to the people so that they might put their hope in it. It was a picture of the desire of the Father to be identified with his children, to be in the midst of them, and to live with them. Not on Mount Olympus, not only in the glories of heaven, but here on earth with his people. To be identified, as Harley and Carol said, to be identified to the nations as the God of the Israelites. You can know the Israelites only if you know their God. They're not just another tribe. They're not just another people in another part of the Middle East. They have a special God. And this God has taken a special interest in them. And so come and grab the corner of the garment of the Jew and say, show me, show me this God that you have given. So he dwelt among us. Moses could not see the glory of God and live. But as he says here, we have beheld his glory. We have seen his glory. And we have lived because he has toned it down enough that we might see and believe. Jesus is the tabernacle. He now will become the place of sacrifice. His body will be the holy of holies and he will give it to God for our sin. He is full of grace and truth. He is the true and greater Moses through whom God will deliver his people and bring judgment on their oppressors, by whom God takes, has, takes from among his people one of their own to serve as his agent, just as Moses did 
and with whom God interacts intimately. Moses went to the mountain and spoke directly with God and came down and his face was aglow. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and spoke with his Father and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. So the writer to the Hebrews writes this in chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. For every priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one to also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law, but they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of that which is in heaven. Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there were three expressions of the, of the Father to his people, in addition to the law that said, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. One of them was the Davidic royal line, where he said, I would always have a member of the family of David on my throne. And there I will show you that I have a continuing interest in you, And in my faithfulness to this promise, you will know that I mean what I say. He gave them also the tabernacle and the temple. Expressions of his presence in his desire to have his presence in the midst of the people. He wants to dwell with us. He desires fellowship with us. The soul that on Jesus does lean for repose He will not, he will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, says the hymn writer, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That doesn't mean that it won't seem at times as though he has forsaken us. John the Baptist sent word to him saying, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? As he languished in prison. And the disciples ran from him, Peter denying him. Though he promised to be with them throughout all of this, they didn't feel it. They didn't like what was happening. And they turned away. But the Lord has said, I will not turn away from you. I will not forsake you. And I will not leave you. And when he did leave and go to heaven after his resurrection and was ascended on high, he sent the Spirit to be with us. So part of the meaning of Christmas is his indefatigable desire to be with us in the midst of our lives, responding to our prayers, interested in every hair upon our head, and desiring fellowship with us. The problem is not his desire, the problem is our response. We don't want to be bothered. We've got enough going on. And after all, what will this mean anyway? Maybe he'll make some claims and demands on me if he gets closer to me. I mean, everybody else who gets closer to me asks more of me, so why wouldn't Jesus ask more of me if he got closer to me? 
and I'm handling my problems and my stress in other ways. So we argue with him, we debate, we, dis we like Jacob, we struggle. But still he says, I desire fellowship with you. I will create that fellowship by my body sacrificed on the cross so that you may have a new and living way open to you and access to the Father and, an, and a heavenly connection. I will do that for you. And in leaving you with the Holy Spirit, I will leave you with something else, the table, as an expression of my ongoing desire to commune with you, to be a part of your life, to feed you and to have you feed off of me. I want this to be a continual reminder that I have not really left you, that I have not changed my mind, I have not broken my promises. I want to commune with you. And so by tabernacle and temple and David's royal line, and in so many ways, the Lord has made his expression by the Spirit and by the table also that he desires to be a part of our lives. What is our response? Well, here David can help us, I believe. Let me read to you a few verses from Psalm 132. It's not in the outline, but I wanted to read these. Listen now. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Now, we know of David as, as a faithful king. Not perfect, but faithful. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep in my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your Lord, servant David, do not reject your anointed one. David is saying, I want you. And I'm going to extend myself. I will not enter my house. I will not go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to come to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. So as he comes to Jerusalem and he brings the Ark of the Covenant up to its resting place, now in the new capital city, this is not a political move. This is a spiritual expression before the people to say, we need the Lord's presence in our lives. We need him to be the thing that most satisfies us and for that for which we most ardently earn. David here is promising to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and to build God a dwelling, a temple ultimately, which he of course did not get to do. David is remembering that the Lord, as the God of Jacob, wrestled with the patriarch, but gave him a deep blessing that he had been looking for all his life because Jacob said, I want you and I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I want you to dwell with me. Now Jacob was not always that way. 
he had to learn through long experience the, pre the preciousness of the presence of God. David wants to be near God at whatever cost in order to know the blessing of God in his heart. And this Psalm 132 tells us that it caused David much suffering to establish God's house in Jerusalem. So we too should pay any price to get near to God. Remembering the one who took a vow like David's and bore the infinite cost to come near to us. So he has made the first move, the biggest move, the most decisive and substantial move. He has come from heaven, he has given us his law, he has given us the, the faithfulness of the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament tr law and truth. He has given us his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple and in the Davidic royal line. He has sent his Messiah. He has sent the Holy Spirit. He has given us the table. These are all expressions of his commitment to communing with us. But David is saying is that calls forth a strenuous response from me. Not passive. A strenuous response for me is to say, I too want him. And I will seek him. I will desire him. I will go out of my way. I will extend myself. I will expend my energies to have him in my life. The fullness of his presence. Too often... Even I, you know, some of you have this exalted view of me because I'm a pastor, but don't think so. Uh, and I think 10% is enough. You know, 5% of me is enough. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I don't want to give anymore. But David says, I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for a, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Vigorous, strenuous response. And truth be known, the reason that my heart is not filled with his truth and grace as his was is because I don't seek the Lord as Jesus sought his Father. Will you seek him with me? Will you make the effort? Will you incline your heart toward him? In a few moments as we come to the table, you will be invited to participate in what he's already done. You will be called upon to respond. What will you do? Will you seek his face? Will you yearn for him and desire him? Or will you join others in just going through the motions of the communion meal? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. He continues to desire you. He wants you. Do you want him? You're the only one that can answer that question. And you're the only one that can convince him that, he, that you do want him doesn't have to be a long prayer. 
doesn't have to be 50 miles of effort. It just has to convince him and make the, the claim that you love him back. It's the kind of thing your children, your spouse asks you. Do you love me? Let me see it. I'm from Missouri. Show me. God's from Missouri. Show him. Let him see, let him, let him see your response. Let him feel it from your heart. Now, as I say, this is difficult if you don't believe. But he invites you to come and be a part of this tremendous connectedness and relationship by simply trusting him and, and loving him back. And it's also difficult if you feel that he's turned his back on you. And from time to time, we all do. We feel forsaken. We sense a great loss. We struggle. And we blame him for that. If that's where you are, all the more reason to reach back up, to invite him in. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. We have the promise of his word on it, we have the truth of it, and so let's act. We have his invitation, may we respond. Let us pray. It is quite astonishing, Lord, that you would come to us uninvited, rejected, chased out of your homeland into Egypt to flee a hateful king. And ever since then, the subject of much reviling and hatred, your name used in vain countless times. And you have endured it all because you desire to be with your people. You have said, heaven is terrific, but it's not enough. I want you. I want you to commune with me. I want to be your Lord. I want to dwell with you. I want to live your life with you. I want to be a part of your life. I want to make it better. And we're busy people, Lord. We... We don't know what that could mean, and we know that when other people get close to us, they make demands on us, and we don't need any more demands on us. But you have promised to sustain us through even the valley of the shadow of death. You have promised to go with us into whatever storm we might face and calm it. You have promised that the one who walks on water can also do great things in our lives. And you have. And we thank you. Forgive us for not loving you back. For you have so strenuously loved us in, in so many ways. As we come to your table now, call forth from us, we pray, a strenuous desire to seek you, to follow you, to know you, and to love you back. 
We are a lukewarm people. We are casual, even about our religion. And we pray that this might end and that we might respond to your love by loving you back. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.